Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the John Reiner podcast. This is episode four, and I am not alone. This will be my Ooh. first time. I know. Oh, we've already heard their beautiful voices. Uh, this will be our uh, first time bringing in a conversation. If you are new to the John Reiner podcast, this whole thing is about uh, stories and conversations that bring life and inspiration. And when I thought about the people in my life, who brought me uh, inspiration and pull me and push me and challenge me to be a better human being. Uh, two of them are my good friends, Joe and Sammy Rogelski. So uh, Joe and Sammy, welcome. And thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for having us. <laughs> yes. I'm going to try and keep my voice not too loud. It's an, it's an oh, honor just make it and a pleasure. Let it be. <laughs> Oh boy. Well, if anyone's Your looking for some voiceovers, yeah. Uh, yeah. that is Joe Rogalski. Yes, that is I'm Joe for All right. So before I forget, you guys, um, and we'll come back around to this, but just in case anyone stops listening to my podcast before it's already done, um, you guys are the head of Upstream International, and you have uh, the Upstream International podcast as well. Is that correct? So can they find you everywhere that podcasts are found? It's true. Yes. It's a true story. Yes. And, 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 and John, I, I, I just, for my own heart have to say, you know, God is the head of upstream. He truly, truly is. We try our, 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 our to follow him every day in it, but I understand what you mean. Yes. <laughs> yes. A little cat. Oh, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Joe. You're going to make John we're, regret We're in a day and age where oh, no, no, every I'm so happy. word matters, right? Yeah. Doesn't it seem that way? Yeah. I could just so imagine somebody was, being like, I'm not going to listen to them because they think they're the head of their own organization. It's not true. Stop it, Joe. Just be quiet. I'll oh, pinch is, him. This is great. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, so in a previous episode of your uh, Upstream International podcast, Joe, you said something, and um, I immediately knew I wanted you to be our first guests, my first guest on this podcast. Um, you said that your upbringing, your life, you kind of view it sometimes as coming from poverty in order to serve the poor. And that's where I want us to go. Um, but first, us. <laughs> the us story. Uh, yes. I, uh, we, I met you guys. My wife and I uh, met you in 2014. We moved from Madison, Wisconsin, up to La Crosse. Yeah. And uh, I think you were actually out of town when I first moved there because you weren't around for a couple of days. And then um, when my moving truck was there and we had to move things, um, then this giant burly man came that I'd never <laughs> seen before. And uh, if you don't know Joe, my goodness, what a specimen of the uh, of the human species. He is absolutely <laughs> oh my. just something else. And so he is oh, strong and muscular. And so I was really excited that this man, a man among men, was coming to help me move. <laughs> Only to see that he had a brace on his arm and he couldn't lift anything. <laughs> and so it was just like all of this just wasted muscle standing right in my doorway. And, and I thought, well, this is great. And immediately uh, I fell in love with you guys. My wife and I fell in love with you guys. We did ministry uh, at a church for a while uh, together. And so our stories inter you know, kind of intertwined in 2014. But I want to go back, Joe uh, and Sammy, and I want to hear your guys' story because like I said, um, you know, much of what you guys do now is even centered in Haiti, the nation of Haiti, which is the poorest nation uh, on the planet, correct? 
It, well, it, yes, can be. I mean, it's always described at least last census Western Hemisphere, but Western, okay. the, the problem is is as a nation. Uh, yes, that is a true statement. There yeah. are poorer yeah. places. If you, yeah, it gets sure. semantics. Sure, sure, sure. Yes, sure. it is. It's at least one of the. Yes. Oh, yeah, for sure. One of financially. And, uh, okay. Yeah. Put it, then, put it and, this way: the, yeah, the World Bank decided to do an assessment, and they were one of three nations that were downgraded to a fourth world country. Sure. Yeah. And then, of sure. course, like the area that we serve specifically is the poorest, like within that area. Yeah. So, so you have the country and its statistics. And then you have this particular slum called City Soleil, which is the area we serve about a half a million people that that would certainly Mother Teresa's words herself was uh, slum of all slums. And this is as she was establishing her order in Haiti, coming from Calcutta and places like that. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, I think um, I'll be honest. I think for a lot of us, that isn't necessarily a place that we would feel driven to go. Um, and that sounds like a terrible thing to say, but I think that is probably something that a lot of us just have zero, zero connection with, zero grid for. So I want you to tell us the story of how you got from a boy from lacrosse to a man driven um, to reach those in Haiti. Where does, where does the Joe story begin for you? Is it funny that as you're saying that, like I have to ch- like decide which part of the Joe well, story? No, not even that, but just choke back tears because oh, okay. to hear somebody else say that is uh, it's kind of inspiring in itself because that's a question I live with every day. Like I, I literally ask myself, how is it that I have alongside my wife and family been so privileged to serve in a place? Like City Soleil. So, um, G whiz it is a softball for me. Uh, and when I say softball, I mean just such an easy subject for me to talk about uh, poverty and all the things that come with it. So, beings that you prep me, and I had some things to think about. I really wanted. I don't really know what that means. A softball. Softball <laughs> I'm is still, decide, I'm decide, stuck I, on the softball. A softball is just like oh, like that if, I, if I'm going to pitch, you? yeah, if I'm going to pitch, okay, okay. I'm going to pitch a hundred mile an hour fastball to you. I got to hope that I can hit it. A softball is kind of like I got a long time to like an easy toss. Okay, yeah, like okay, there you go. Up. Yeah, yeah. I, I was like, I don't think I can hold this back. Sports. I have to ask what you're talking about. <laughs> hey, I'm not really like I'm not the athletic type. In case you couldn't tell, John. <laughs> no. you are. I mean, let's not downgrade yourself. You know, yeah. like you could be. You just uh, you focus on other things. <laughs> no, if I could be, to be honest, we'll just say I'm not. <laughs> I have other skill sets. Okay. Yeah, That's exactly. Fine. You've dedicated your time to other things. I was <laughs> trying to defend her in that whole argument. I couldn't even come up with anything. something athletic yeah. I've ever done. <laughs> Although she can hold her own in bowling. I actually cannot. You beat me every time. I, I'm, yeah, but I mean, like against children, you can beat I'm good children at, and bowling. I'm good at banana grams. <laughs> you can beat children. In, I beat uh, children. Right? I will say I am competitive. That is one thing. I might not be sportsy, but I am competitive. So there's no mercy even for the kids. Banana grams, yes. I will whoop you. I don't care if you cry at the end. Nobody's going to give you a free ride in life. So you're actually just good with words. Yeah, I'm good <laughs> not with so much. Not so much a sports aspect. Right. There you the go. Word. Exactly. Okay. Sorry. Sorry, yeah. babe. No, you're go great. Ahead. I love it. Okay. So, well, so here, let me just, let me, I'm going to set a, a little bit of a filter here and just say, you know, I could really, you know, bring everyone to their knees and tears of my sad, sad uh, childhood story. What's hard about that is a couple of things. One, I've always wanted to honor my parents, you know, like I just, uh, I love uh, my mom and dad, my dad's no longer with us, but even at a young age, for some reason, I didn't, know that it was God at the time, but I just had so much compassion even for them because I knew that they had a story. I was fortunate enough to hear 
my parents' story through uh, the lens of my grandmother at a young age, I was probably six or seven. So kind of after that point, I stopped feeling sorry for myself and my circumstances and really just saw my parents as, as kind of these two broken people that we just got to figure life out together, right? Yes, and uh, so I do think since this is like a public platform, you should yeah. probably spare certain yeah, yeah. details about yeah, yeah. your no, choices. No, yes. yeah, I could. I, and I, how you got here yeah. even. Yeah. I've already thought about all of that. <clears throat> so let's just, let's throw this as just kind of a starting point, you know, so uh, a very young mother, she was about 15 at the time. And uh, my dad was home on leave from the military. Those two met and, and uh, produced a child and uh, in lacrosse. They did. Yeah. So yeah, lacrosse, they had, they had met on French Island for those that are listening locally. Uh, those Islanders have a lot of pride that John might may or may not know about coming from Madison, but French Island and lacrosse were age old rivals. So anyways, those two are, were Islanders. And uh, they had met there and I was conceived somewhere on the way between there and Long Beach, California. So their best guess is when they stopped to visit uh, my dad's sister in Colorado. <laughs> so so I was I was I was born in love. Yeah, I was <laughs> born at a, a Long Beach Naval Base in 1979 and shortly thereafter ended back up in La Crosse. Most of my childhood was a back and forth, you know, so my parents would do the best with me that they could. Uh, my safety net was always my grandparents. So sure. my my uh, my mom's mom and dad were pretty much my my second grandparents. Second grandparents? Second or, parents. Sorry, second parents. Second parents. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, to describe the, the so let me st- state this, right? So your question or, or the thing that kind of started this all off was, coming from a place of poverty and then serving poverty. What a lot of people don't understand, unless they grew up poor, is is it becomes a real identity issue. Um, Whether it's from coming from outside influences or not, for some of us that grew up that way, we personalize it. Uh, When I speak with my friends about racism and different things like that, that's an area that I can identify the the types of insecurities or the less than components that come with growing up poor it becomes this like identity crisis and and uh, so most of my childhood it wasn't so much the physical poverty that I had a hard time it was just uh, like how much I felt robbed like so examples would be I started having problems in school right off the bat you know kindergarten first grade second grade I could have memories of being in in uh, my principal's office and just kind of getting hammered for not being able to adjust well to school. But what these people didn't understand is I was getting home sometimes at 2.30, 3.30 in the morning, entertaining my parents at taverns, you know, and getting up at 6.30, 7 o'clock to walk to school because I didn't have, you know, my mom and dad, they weren't all about sure. loading me up in the car and driving me there. And what, when you grow up, uh, in a certain area of, of, say, American poverty, that typically is neighborhoods, right? So, like, the neighborhoods I was coming from, that's where my friends were coming from, too. So, you, my school, my elementary school, it, I never once thought about uh, physical poverty from the sense of what I didn't have. It wasn't a material thing, but it showed up a lot, like I said, in those expectation areas, like, mm-hmm. I wanted to do good in school. Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to make people proud of me or happy. I didn't want to disappoint, excuse me, disappoint uh, teachers and stuff like that. But so those were kind of some of those first implanting parts of, mm. of 
of being poor, so to speak. Different ways it would show up would be like holidays. Uh, so like my aunts and uncles uh, were far better off uh, than my parents were. And it felt like our own home was segregated, you know, so like we'd sure. gather at grandpa and grandma's house for Christmas or Easter or whatever. And I was the kid coming in that, you know, lived in a small apartment or whatever with two smokers, you know, so like sure. you smelt me walking in the door. <laughs> so it was like, it was all of these little things that added up. It wasn't until middle school uh, that I real that I associated physically, you know, my poverty to like what I did have or, or didn't have. Um, because this all of a sudden becomes this, this point in time where you're going to school and everybody's paying attention to what you're wearing mm. or what you're not sure. wearing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, so I, yeah, whatever. Salvation Army, rummage sales, hand-me-downs. Sometimes we pick through dumpsters for, I mean, it's like our lifestyle was just what it was. And as a young person growing up that way, you just, whatever, you, you don't think too much of it because your buddies down the street are in the same boat as you are. Yeah. But then all of a sudden you get into like middle school and stuff like that. And so anyways, this started this desire in me to make a change yeah. in my life. So I became this hard, hardworking little kid. You know, I was hustling. It didn't matter if I was stopping at cars and cones, which was this little store across the street from my middle school that sold like penny tootsie rolls and and uh, like baseball cards like that. i'd buy these things load up my locker and sell them throughout the day because people didn't buy enough in the morning themselves and maybe sure. they wanted some gum or tootsie yeah. rolls or whatever so i learned business that way and and then like just shoveling snow mowing lawns i do all of these things uh to buy stuff like i just sure it's reebok pumps Jabot pants, whatever it was, he didn't have yeah. hyper color shirts. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that's important, I think, for listeners to know is I had no uh, interaction with the church or God uh, from like a formal sense. You know, I didn't have parents that were taking me to church. It wasn't like conversations around the house. It wasn't even conversations in the neighborhood. Um, but if I were to describe many of my childhood memories, uh, they would have a lot of prayer involved in them. Like I had experienced uh, probably by middle school, so many traumatic experiences, whether it be car accidents, my parents being car accidents, people in my family going to jail, people leaving. I mean, just a lot, a lot of different things that come with the ordinary from growing up uh, that way. Um, yeah. So I, <laughs> I can just remember taking all of that stuff before God and praying about it and really just, it's kind of like when the switch flipped in my mind that wanted to have compassion. Like I wanted people to empathize for me. I guess we could call it even like a victim mentality, uh, a, like a unmatured version of a victim mentality. Like I started thinking about all of my problems were coming from the lack of things that I had. Like maybe uh, if I would have had different parents who had been born in a different situation, if, uh, uh, if I just had X, Y, or Z, my life would be better. So really most of my childhood uh, was all around that, working really hard to obtain things, mm -hmm. thinking those things would provide uh, the void that I was trying to fill in my life. Sure. And I would say like, well, that, and wouldn't you say too, like 
obviously I have known you for a long time. So a lot of your story is like the addition of sports into your life too, where like another avenue where you tried to really find some sort of identity, yeah. some sort of like meaning and purpose behind it all. Yeah. So uh, I, which is where that body came yeah. from, John yeah. Ryder. Oh my <laughs> gosh, that body. As a 42 year old man looking back at, as a 42 year old man looking back uh. at, my, at, at my childhood, um, you know, like the real simple brush over part would be serious, serious identity issue, the world and what I imposed on myself was all of my problems were because of, of my poverty, mm-hmm. um, physical poverty, and, and just the cards that you're dealt. I mean, yeah, sure. if you, if, if you're going to really process it all, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was a lifetime of trying to figure out how to fulfill that, you know, so mm-hmm. sports, which, you know, for me, it was all about words of affirmation, hearing from coaches that you're doing a good mm-hmm. job or being able to look in the paper and see that you did a good job or yeah. whatever it was always, always kind of chasing and, and trying to fill that. And so you, you fast forward to, let's say my senior year, I had put all of my eggs in my personal salvation, like, you know, to, to try to get myself to go to, you know, to take the world's track mm-hmm. to success, that type of salvation was going to come in the form of, of the military. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. have parents that had put any money aside for school. I, I missed out on scholarships because I got injured really bad going into my, between my junior and senior year. And I was like, all right, the Navy's going to be where it's at. So another what was situation. Your, what was your father? You said that he was in the military. Did you, yeah, that influence my, your decision to to do well, military. I came, yeah, I came from career military people. So my yeah. grandfather was retired military. My, sure. my both grandpas were retired military. Uh, my dad did three. He did uh, Army, Navy, and the National Guard. So that's how uh, we ended up with a daughter named Sailor. Yeah, I didn't even know that you could do that. Yeah, I didn't know that either. <laughs> yeah, we yeah, have lots of retired transfer. military in both of our you families. Can tra- you can transfer yeah. branches. So uh, I guess. Uh, let's, let's put a cap on that. Right. I, I think some of my stumbling is because I want to be honorable. Right. Yep. Like I said, when you're dealing with your childhood story, I still have a, a living mother and I don't want, the last thing I want to do is I'm trying to get her all wrapped up and, no, yep, and all yep. that good stuff. Yep. It's not for her to be feeling guilty about a childhood because <laughs> she did. I mean, she, she, she worked really hard. I mean, she still is working hard. That, that yep. gal has been, it's one thing she's been doing her whole life. So I created, whether in myself or statistics, right? Because as I start approaching high school, statistically oh, speaking, you? kids from my neighborhood, they're going, I mean, they're going to prison. That's just yeah. kind of like, it's very, very common. Uh, uncles, you know, you know how like when you have friends of the family that you call uncle that aren't really uncles. You yeah, sidetracked yeah. yourself though, because look. you're trying to protect your mama. You were talking military. You were talking senior year military. Yeah, no. So yeah, <laughs> I know. But what I was what I was trying to recap even on that was just saying I was trying my hardest uh, in my own humanity to figure out how to be a good and decent person. Hmm. I didn't want to fall to the statistics that everybody was speaking over me, even like some of the things that I could maybe find contentment in because there was a time in in pre-high school where I was like, well, I have this desire to be really good at stuff. Maybe I'll be really good at being bad, right? Like I'll just pick a bad track in life and be really good at that. 
Sure. You know, so like yeah, yeah, yeah. you're just looking for fulfillment. You're chasing it. Yeah, so yeah. military comes in and that's an epic failure for me. So I find myself 19 years old. I'm booted out of the military for all kinds of goofy, dumb reasons that we don't need to bore your listeners with. But for the first time in my life, for the first time in my life, I had so much willpower, so much like grit and grr hmm. that I had somehow gotten myself at least to the age of 19. And I say that because there were a handful of times where I almost cut it short even before then. Hmm. So here I am at 19 and I'm facing probably one of the only men that I respect and love, which is my grandfather. And I'm a failure. And then I have to look at another guy that I love and respect a lot. who's was basically like a hero in my life and I'm a failure. And I swallow this gigantic pill called hopelessness. Mm-hmm. And in three months I spiral like nobody's business. I mean, like I have worked with everything that I thought I had to get to a place and I failed. So in that moment of failure, I didn't want to necessarily like take myself out of this world, but I started making decisions like I could care less whether I lived or died. And I had experienced at this point really hard things. So hard things didn't scare me like the survivor mentality of, 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 you know, like, what if you live on the streets? Well, I've done that. That's me. I survived. That's, yeah. that's, you know, like, what if you, you know, all these things and it just didn't happen. So anyways, in three yeah, months most, time, most anyone else's worst case scenarios for you is just kind of like, yeah, so, okay. Right. So, and I, I laid that down because it'll show up a little bit in, sure. in your bigger question of serving the poor. So <laughs> I don't want to give the devil any glory but when someone no longer is filtering their decisions through what if you can do some really dumb things. And uh, I got out of the military uh, September of 1999. 98. Cause we met in 99. Yes. You're right. Okay. So September of 99 by December. By December of 99, I'm in prison in British Columbia, Canada. Oops. The things, that, the things, the things Whoopsies. that took place, the things are so like, <laughs> that was for anybody that has a geographical map, that's a long ways to get in three months uh, and end up in prison uh, as a, a poor boy growing up in, in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Well, so British Columbia, that's West coast, right? That's yeah. 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 yeah that's, that's West coast, far West Canada. Canada. And where yeah. I was arrested for anybody that's interested in looking into it is Quinnell, British Columbia. So I'm almost to the Yukon territory. My gosh. Ding dong. Total ding dong. <laughs> so I'll spare, you all the, I'll spare you all the fun details of what got me there, but let's just say it involved. Uh, let's just not say let's move on. Uh, a casino, a casino, and a lot of RCMPs and me on the run after robbing such casino. I thought we were going to leave it out. I thought that was like weird. another episode for another day. Yeah. 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 So here I am. The thing, okay, before you go too far, yeah. I will say that the goodness of God, because he knows like what's going to happen in your future too, right? And so uh, 
Thankfully, he didn't allow him to go to prison in the U.S. because that would have really affected uh, future adoptions. It would have changed. It would have changed, <laughs> oh. changed, changed a lot of sure. things. We would not uh, have been able to increase our family. So, so, let's, so what let's, are you? Nineteen, twenty? I'm nineteen. Let's speed this yeah. train up. You were eighteen when you went to prison. No, I was nineteen. Oh yeah, yeah, you're nineteen. You're you're so let's, let's Sorry. Speed, let's speed the train up. Let's speed the train up. Uh, conclusion <laughs> of that. Conclusion of that seven-year sentence. 13 months into that seven-year sentence, Canada's like, hey, let's just get rid of this guy because Wisconsin wants him back. <laughs> he was so loved. Yeah. Um, Wisconsin was like, can we have so him? So I was, I was in Canada in part running away from Wisconsin, trying to make my way to Alaska, where I was going to be a shrimp boat captain. <laughs> Another nugget. Can I give one more nugget? Sure. Okay. Sure. So, you know, Wisconsin wanted him back. There was some things. Okay. So when we actually met, you know, it was part of this whole Wisconsin wanting him back thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that's super cool too. And like I was saying, like God's grace and knowing like what Joe's future would hold and how this whole like adoption, all that stuff that would come in our life the judge who actually like gave Joe a second chance was also the same judge that finalized making worthy and gospel adopted on the U S side. So that was like a really cool, cool, um, full circle. circle, Yeah. Worthy and gospel are your two, uh, two kids that you adopted from from China. China. Mm -hmm. So we had to finalize on the U S side too. And so that was just a really cool, same judge. So we were sitting there facing stuff together when he, you know, we were both young and then, you know, all those years yeah. later, we have a picture with her and our whole big and he's family. Like, so. I recognize you. Oh, oh she yeah. knew she, us. She knew, she us, knew us. We very actually well did some work together well, because of ministry she stuff. Was on, we were uh, by this time, she had spent some time with us uh, through an at-risk team ministry and she'd also dealt with my brother. So, uh, yeah. um, Canada, so Wisconsin wants you back. You're up so in was, the UConn. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. This is a great story, John. Huh? So there's this beautiful thing it. called there's this there's this beautiful thing called extradition. So like getting <laughs> from Canada to Wisconsin in itself is a lifetime journey. But so I, I find myself in Wisconsin. I'm in Wisconsin and something hits me being back incarcerated in my own hometown. And some of that is I know a lot of these people. And uh when I left high school, these were people that I wouldn't necessarily want. I worked really hard to not be associated with these people. These were the kids from my neighborhood that I was trying not to become and be and all this type of stuff. And I thought it was going to come through my hard work, right? By being really smart, by by working really hard at, at uh, providing myself with fresh clothes so I didn't get classified in that group for trying to bust my tail in sports. Uh, these things just weren't working out for me. And now I'm hanging my head low as I'm facing a lot, a lot of time in prison and I'm desperate. Like I'm so, so desperate. I'm willing to go to church. <laughs> oh, wow. He really so did say that. <laughs> desperate. I so need to desperate. go to church. It happens. I'm, it I'm happens. up in, I'm up in my cell and I hear line up for church. I don't know what church is, dude. Like, I seriously don't. I don't. I really your family I, didn't go. No, I'm not kidding. Part of your I'm life. not kidding yeah. you. I had probably a dozen, you know, steeple type churches, Catholic, Lutheran, Methodist type churches in my neighborhood. I had no idea what happened in those yeah. places. I yeah. literally didn't. But I heard that and I was like, oh, I want to go. Yeah. 
I want to get out of my cell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's be honest here. No, well, whatever reason it was, I was compelled to go, and uh, there was six old men sitting in these chairs facing us that had I can remember it to this day the goofiest smiles on their faces. Dude, these were infectious, crazy smiles. And I remember as they were talking, you know, through this hour church session my body physically getting closer to the edge of my seat. Like I was just drawn to what these guys were saying. Now hindsight, right? Looking back at that moment, because it doesn't have a, the ending we're all looking for. Uh, what was happening was this is a 45 minute, one hour session of these guys talking about Jesus, but they're highlighting the Bible. They were in there that day, uh, repping this thing called a touch point Bible. It's basically a study Bible. And they were talking about how this Bible changes your life and how this Bible does this and how this Bible has these little cheats at the bottom that can help you understand this verse up here and this Bible, this Bible, this Bible. So in how overwhelming was that for you? Like you've never no, been no. there. Seriously, dude. Okay. So I'm not overwhelmed at this point. Wow. My naivety though thinks this Bible is going to save my life. I don't know anything different. I don't know. I'm not hearing about Jesus. I'm not hearing about anything. I'm a tangible, physical, world-walking boy looking for answers. And these guys are telling me it's in this Bible. It's in this ancient book. Yep. So, boom. Anybody want a Bible? I want a Bible. I take that thing back to my cell. And I'm cruising through that thing up in my cell, right? I'm reading and I'm reading and I'm reading. And why do most of us in desperate situations uh, go to God or go to the Bible, whatever it is? Because we want answers we want like things figured out well my circumstances weren't changing i mean i'm still locked up in a cell i'm still facing a lot of time um so i can remember probably a week into it chucking that thing across the room and being like this thing's stupid mm. like, these guys don't know what they're talking yeah, about yeah, so this yeah. thing's not changing anything in my life you know i'm probably somewhere in leviticus now getting really confused this person is related to this person and what? what what you and i know as pastors and what i know now <laughs> What I know in hindsight is I must have must have taken a step towards God, even though I was taking a step towards the Bible. I must have been taking a step towards God because some really freaky, weird things start happening in my life. Uh, my attorney, my my mom wrestled together like a thousand bucks to actually hire me an attorney. Wow. And my attorney comes to me uh, this next morning. She goes, Joe, she goes, you know, do you know your rights? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? She goes, well. You know, you've been in prison for a while and and these are fresh charges. You have the right to a speedy trial. And the DA is really dragging their feet on this. And she's like, I know Ramona Gonzalez really well. We ran together for the judge seat. Like, I think we could get you a, a new bond hearing. Now, for your listeners, I don't want to educate you guys too much. But basically what's <laughs> happening is I get criminal extra, justice. It costs the state of Wisconsin, a lot of money to get me to the state of Wisconsin. So when I show up in La Crosse County jail, they put a hundred thousand dollar bond on me, which is like what you put on like mass, you know, like real, real serious, high, high crime. Crime. Yeah, yeah. real serious. Yeah. And criminals. it wasn't anything like, and I was facing, I was facing some real stuff, but their big thing was like this, you know, what, anyway, so we don't want him to go back to Canada. They don't want me to go back to Canada. <laughs> Basically they're saying this guy's a flight risk. He's a so. flight risk. Yeah. 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 So I, I'm I'm sitting there thinking I'm never going to see the, the light of day. For those of you guys who don't understand what bond is, bond does not free you of any of your charges. It just means you get to walk around outside the building while you're going through all your court hearings and processes. So here it is, September of 1999. 
And my my judge goes or my lawyer goes in front of Ramona Gonzalez and says, hey, Ramona, this is a young man. Like I've got affidavits from his school and stuff like that. Like, you know, he grew up rough and grew up tough. You probably remember seeing his mom and dad in here because you know, my mom and dad were constantly in this place, too. And uh, she goes, but he he has the right to a speedy trial. And the D.A. really is is, is not moving fast enough on this thing. Can we get him a new bond hearing? She says, sure, I come back from my bond hearing, $1,000 cash bond. My mom's able to find, beg, borrow, and steal or go to the pawn shop. I don't know what she did, but she got me bonded out. It was right around her birthday, I can remember. And, uh, man, some bizarre things happened right there. I don't want to try to go back. I'm getting stuck in memory lane here. But oh, you're good. What, what's happening is I don't see this as a blessing yet. I don't, you know, this I'm not a, your second chance yet. Yeah, I'm not, weird. I'm not tying that this current moment to that. I want a Bible moment. Yeah. yeah. So I right away say, hey, mom, can I have a cigarette? Can I borrow your phone? My first phone call was to try to figure out how to get money in my pocket. And that led to December, September to December. I have he was not making wise choices i have <laughs> great things going for me that oh, allowed <laughs> big wads of cash to be in my pocket and, and he was uh, not working at mcdonald's okay this was not this was not quick trip this was so, not chick-fil-a so we are december 7th of 1999 and i had somebody storm my house rob me for some illegal things in which I chased him down the street and was shooting at him. Not wise, not wise. Crime, he, he didn't know me yet. Crime okay. Stoppers. Crime Stoppers is all over the place. I'm like, man, I'm in so much trouble. I'm in so much trouble. I'm going to go drink my sorrows away. Mm. And I'm underage and I'm able to get myself into this place. Don't, called, no, but we're not into gonna, this place called. Don't say what it is because you just said you got an underage. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm actually friends with the former owner. So <laughs> don't say it loud. <laughs> I go into this place. I order a cranberry and vodka. And I kid you not, John Reiner and listeners, I promise you, I go deaf. Can't hear a single thing. I mean, like everything's happening. You know, the lady's going to get my drink. Everything's happening. And I can't hear anything. And uh, in that moment, I just like, I don't know how to describe it. But I think you might have walked away during the part where I was talking about my childhood was really, as I think about it, just a memory of prayers, constantly calling out to God. Mm -hmm. like, What's my purpose? Why am I here? Why did this happen to me? Why did I grow up poor? Why didn't I grow up rich? And all these different things. And why did my mom this? And why this to me? And it was like in this moment of, of, of silence, I just heard this steady voice saying, I was there. I got you through. Mm. And there's this really pivotal moment when I'm 16 and I'm literally bit down on the barrel of a gun trying to like exit. And I remember when I was 16, just saying, God, if there's a purpose for me. If you have a plan for me, let me live. And obviously I'm alive, but he didn't show that plan to me until that night that I'm sitting in this bar and his plan. How much time was that? I just feel like stopping right there. How much time was that? You're biting down on the end of that barrel and you're saying three years. If you have something for me, four years, almost four years, four years. Yeah. yeah. It just makes almost me think of um, a weird, a weird, just little thought of how many other people might feel that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. That moment of like, I'm, I think I'm done. 
Mm-hmm. I don't think I can get out of this. I don't think it's going to get better. Mm-hmm. I think I've exhausted all of my own natural resources. You said I tried to do all this on my own. Absolutely. Uh, I think I'm done. Uh, yeah. And how many of them might wish that it's just like, so the next day. Yeah, right. Right. It's all there. It's all clear, right. you know, no, and, God, and you're like saying you said, it's three I, years like yeah. that you kept holding on yeah. to some idea that there's got to be something. There's yeah. Not. And that's, and that's the whole, like, this is why certain things when all of a sudden you get exposed to scripture becomes so, I mean, like, I didn't know the next day after biting down on that barrel that it was God's grace that was getting me through. I didn't know that it was his yeah, yeah. love that was getting me. So anyways, um, this moment concludes in this bar with seeing this illuminated, a beautiful, gorgeous woman. I was glowing, guys. I was glowing. glowing. That if I'm going to be completely honest, <laughs> oh. as much as I want to build my wife, as much as I want to build my wife up in this moment, I didn't even like it wasn't. It, as much as I want to build her up, I'm not going to. No, as much no, as I'd like to that, compliment. I mean, it wasn't. <laughs> I'm going to say it, it had nothing. Not it happen. was not a physical <laughs> experience. It wasn't a physical experience. This was, was a, a spiritual, spiritual experience, experience because as I became locked in on her and my hearing is returned, the final words that this, I didn't know to call God at this moment, say to me is if you want to know me, you need to follow me. And this thing, which was my wife, didn't know it was my wife, was walking out of the building. So I'm freaking out. Like, she seems to obviously be associated to this moment. I can hear. Everything's fixed. Wonderful. And I'm sitting here looking over at my buddy being like, did that just happen to you? Like, I don't know what's going on. And, <laughs> and I, I was I was just going to get a sandwich, John. Right. Did you, were you also, did you lose your hearing and see a glowing light around that girl that just walked out? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I mean, I am dead serious, man. I, I mean, this is as real as the five fingers yep, on my yeah, hands this yep. moment in my life. And I feel just as ridiculous saying it today as, as I as I did the day oh, it happened. You're good. You're good. But uh uh what happened, and here I am, John. Well, what, what what happens what happens next <laughs> is what happens baby. next is she walks back in the door with a bunch of herbers and gerbers, starts handing it out to everybody, and I don't know what to do because I'm supposed to be following whatever. So I just go up to her in all of my weird and awkwardness. And it's like, hey, where are you working? You know, and, you know, can you serve me tonight? For some reason, I I, mean, I must need to get to know you. So I happen to work at this establishment <laughs> is what he's telling yeah. you. <laughs> and, and I buy her love in this moment. I put a big wad of money in her back pocket. And I said, do whatever you got to do to figure out how to bring me drinks tonight. Wow. That's how we met. End of story. That's why we served the poor, buddy. That's why we served the poor. That's why we served the poor, buddy. Cut the episode there. Right? What a line. Wow. People are going to want to tune in for the next one. Sammy, how do you respond to that? How do you respond to some guy coming up? Did he say, hey, I just went deaf. I heard a voice saying no, to follow he, you that the next he day. saved that for he the was next a lot day. of cash no, for no. My vodka cranberries he was he must have been somewhat smart he saved the uh, vision for the next day uh but you know i was 19 i was working at a bar selling shots like i wasn't even really in a great place in my own life sure. and so he throws some money in my back pocket and i'm like all right yeah i'll serve the table that's cool <laughs> <laughs> So I'll follow you. Uh, you, sure. you asked me, you asked me for my story and I know this is a no, long yeah, no, way no, to, no, no, I know no, it's no, a long good. way to get there, but I, I'm a preacher. So I know how, I know how to make it end well. So <laughs> oh, everybody just needs funny. to, bear, everybody needs to bear with me through the long <laughs> oh. drug out story at the beginning, just so I can the tell you some cool burn? scripture in the back. Burn, I think. 
on himself too. <laughs> yeah, for burn. So evidence at this moment is God is the next day. I'll spare you all the details of the next day, but long story short, I have this beautiful woman, absolutely beautiful woman sitting across from me at a booth at Perkins, 24-hour breakfast joint in La Crosse. That was me, by the way, guys. And <laughs> I have every opportunity to just flirt with her and try to woo her and win her over. And I chose the latter. I basically sat across from her and said, I am a pile of dirt. If you have no idea how big of a pile of dirt I am. I grew up like this. This is what's happening in my life right now. Probably going to jail for a long time. Blah, 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 blah. Here's what happened last night. I go deaf. I'm supposed to follow whatever's talking to me. You're glowing. This is weird. <laughs> Obvi. I mean, tell me, tell me what, me? tell no, me what to do. Tell me what to do. Guys, check me out. Okay. I don't even like telling that this. was like, let's just say that was like serious. Uh, can I tell you why? I should have ran, right? Can I tell you why I don't enjoy telling the story sometimes? Why? Because I know, I know how the world treats testimony sometimes. Sure, they yeah. want a testimony like this. Yeah, like I want a cool testimony. Or it minimizes their story or whatever. Yeah. Like Which we just, were always really careful uh, in youth ministry. Like so it's, careful. It's one of the reasons why talking I about like most people haven't even heard much of my story because I, I, we've always kind of felt that responsibility of like, yes, like you want to give God glory for your story. And at the same time, like you also don't want people to want that to be there. So right. to like have an excuse, especially when you're dealing this, with youth. This, this everybody is just proof of how far of God's reach yeah, yeah. Uh, is whether it be into the gutters, like these things had to happen this way for him to save me. Yeah. He can do yeah. a lot of things to save different people. This is what he had to do for me because it, what starts to happen after this moment are all the things that connect the dots. Let me ask um, Sammy, Sammy, what are you doing yeah. in that, in that Perkins booth? This guy tells you all this also tells you his upbringing tells you that he's probably going to jail for a while. Uh, I'm a pile of dirt. Um, so are you, I mean, yeah. Are you ordering pie you know, Perkins? Are you? Yeah, I think I actually had hot chocolate. You, I think I had hot chocolate. Did you hot chocolate French fries? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I think my entire life I've been uh, kind of a fan of the underdog or a fan of, um, you know, anybody maybe that in society wasn't number one. Uh, it's part of even how we ended up with kids with Down syndrome. I just always, like my whole life, I would spend time like in, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school, going in like the special ed room or like sitting by the nerd at school or, you know, those things. Like it was just kind of always a part of me. Like I just always kind of just had a compassion for people um, in a in a down and out situation. And so um, I think for me, I wanted to, like he's telling me this and I'm like okay I want to fix this but I didn't know how because at the same time you know I was 19 years old I had just moved to back to the lacrosse area um I was living in my parents basement um because I had just left a really crappy situation of my own um and I you know my experience um growing up until I was like in fourth grade, I grew up in the Catholic church, um, but not with any sort of relationship with Jesus going on in our house. And then my parents uh, gave their lives to Christ. And 
you know, that worked for them, but it wasn't something that was like working for my brother or I, uh, I saw a lot of things in the church, um, that didn't make sense to me. Um, I had a heart for God. Like I still have my Bible from when I was in, you know, 13 years old, or maybe like 11 years old to 15 years old. And I can see all the things that I highlighted and wrote about, but I didn't necessarily see it in church. And especially, you know, some of my teenage years, um, pretty much from like 14 to shortly before I met Joe was just like a lot of trying to figure out where I fit. And there were not really people in the church that made me feel like I had space to do that. Or like I had, um, that like, it just was a negative thing. So I had my own issues like with church as a whole and just figuring out like, how does this work? Cause I'm for the underdog. I'm currently the underdog and I'm not feeling like very embraced. And then I have this dude sitting across from me. Who's like, um, hi, my life stinks. I'm a pile of crap. Uh, what do I do? And at the time my dad was pastoring. And so I just said, you need to talk to my dad. Like I, I got nothing. <laughs> okay. Okay. So check me out. Right. So I, Listeners, I have no idea what the church is. I hear yeah. I hear this thing. I hear this thing tell me to follow him, illuminates a girl. I tell her everything that's happening, and her first response back to me is Talk to my, my dad's pastor. a pastor. Guess what goes on in my head? He must not be a very good pastor if he has a kid. He thought he was a priest. <laughs> like, how does he have a kid? If he's I don't crazy? know anything. Yeah, I don't yeah. know anything. But one thing that I might have picked up in American culture is that's probably bad. Right? <laughs> no, so but no, but seriously. That's how the story goes, though. I told yeah. him, go, go talk to my dad. And I, um, yeah. well, and like. And then what? Two or three days later, what happened to your Okay, so, so, yeah. So minor detail. Minor <laughs> detail. No, minor detail. Joe and I realized three days in, you know, so the next day after Perkins, Joe tattoos my name on his neck. And I'm like, it's probably. How do you fly over that so fast? You just flew over that so fast. It's a minor detail. Two days. Two days after meeting John Remember when I spared the details of the poverty I grew up in? It is not to associate my poverty with how ghetto. Yeah, yeah. So the funny part is, I knew knew, you tattooed her name on your neck. Well, yeah. And the funny part is, okay, I love it. I knew the owner of the tattoo shop because my brother's, uh, a friend of my brother's had worked there. And so we come in to get, like, we come in to get tattoos. Like, I'm going to get Joe on my neck. He's getting Sammy on his neck. And he is straight up like, Sammy, do not get his name (laughs) tattooed on you. He tattoos my name on Joe, but he's like, don't do it. So I actually have Joe's name on my lower back. We got matching, you know, we got tattoos the same day. Yeah, just not the same location. Exactly. Thankfully, because, you know, I probably regret that one. Um, And so, you know, (laughs) I now he's got to meet my dad. And so I have to tell my dad uh, and I told my parents, I was like, you know, uh, I met the guy I'm going to marry. And they're like, what? (laughs) Oh my yeah, I did. Two days and ago. Yeah, his three, name's right here. three days. Technically three. Technically three. Yeah. His name's right here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got his tat- I got it. I got him tattooed on me. It's a little disguised in a butterfly, but it's there. <laughs> um, and so my mom, I told her, and she actually had me write this thing that she gave me a year later when we got uh, married. Uh, she made me write like this thing, like I, Samantha Joe Baumgarten, someday I'm gonna marry Joseph, you know, Rogelski, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I was like, no, I'm really doing it. And so then Joe had to come meet my parents uh, with my name on his neck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so freshly. Yeah. Freshly on his neck. Fresh. Man, I tell you what, like, 
we could Oops. we could we got to write a book or something or make a full length movie because yeah, yeah. a full length these, movie these thoughts not a, not a mini one these yeah. thoughts are leading to so many other thoughts that I know we got to skip aren't, it because it's gonna yeah. be the longest so you, podcast so you, in Reiner world so you got so you guys all of a sudden are together um yeah. in like a radical way like a, a very way. quick way a yeah, quick, and in quick, a very pregnant way, way. God, in a very and, pregnant way yeah. God used yes, us yes if we're being honest we were in a very pregnant way too. And uh, pre- yeah, that- I mean, we were in, we knew that marriage we were engaged we had wedding dress all types yep. of stuff bought yeah but you yep. know when you're going from where where we were and this is where you <laughs> oh, and I have yeah, talked yeah, and many no, people have yeah. talked uh, the convictions that came instantaneous with with you know following Christ and what later became baptism what later became a lot a lot of Bible reading and mentorship in the church stuff like that you know, it was a little clunky. At there's first. a mountain. It's still stuff a little clunky. Oh, you, know? you guys are even, forgetting. You guys are we're not talking about that at all. Part. This is not a concern at all. No, but yeah. that's what yeah, I'm saying right. is we're forgetting about the most, most important part. We're doing all this while I'm still on bond. Yeah. 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 Oh, uh, whoops. Yeah, real quick. How did that clear long. up? How did that finally clear up? Well, I was two, pregnant. Two no, not was here. It? It, I was pregnant with Ayana okay. and we had to go to court and I, I came and I sat there in my pregnancy and, um, long story short, people that were supposed to testify were like, nah, we're not going to anymore. And judge Gonzalez gave Joe a second chance and was just like, Hey, like you have this woman sitting here, she's having your baby. Let's get it together. That, and, that along with a lot, a lot of signed piece of paper from people that I had met during that year that said, this guy's turned his life around. He's held his job yeah. down. We were already volunteering at a youth center. So cross fire downtown lacrosse. Like yeah. as soon as we like gave our lives to Jesus and we were walking, you know, that direction, we started serving. I don't know how that happened. It just really did. Israel McKinney. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. yeah. So what, what I'm going to spare you guys of, and we can always do different segments in the future if you want. Cause like I said, right now we're going to get into like a lot, a lot of different parts and pieces. I'm on my salvation story and we're going to summarize a whole bunch of years. We're going to summarize five years. Basically what starts to happen is what I consider more of a rags to riches type conversion. And what I mean by that is because there's so many physical things wrong in my life, the blessing, so to speak, seem to be coming in that form, right? So like, I'm not going to jail. I'm not going to prison. All my old friends are going away. I'm getting all these new friends going to church. I'm getting a job. My job's leading to a new job. That job's leading to a job. We're making money, but what's going on inside of me? We're also serving inside of me. Right. And as I'm serving inside of me is. And like the population that we were serving was much similar to Joe's upbringing. The people in the churches. Now this is not judgment. This is where personal convictions start to come into place. The people in the churches were not concerned about my people, right? I got a hold of this message from Jesus and saw what it did in my life. My natural instinctive response was, let's go share this with everybody. Well, guess who my everybody is? My everybody is other physically poor, broke kids, well, what I start to, and Sammy and I start to learn is there's a huge cultural divide. You know, this is like yeah. to try to get the average, and like I say, average, the average church going person to come serve in ghettos. Uh, you got rich young ladies writing checks to fix broke ghetto people's problems. And they feel really good about it. And then a few weeks later, they're mad because that broke ghetto person is just looking for more money and they're not coming to church and their life's not getting better. And, and 
long story short is Sammy and I started realizing that we had a very specific membership card. Mm-hmm. And when I say membership card, there's two, what I consider the two greatest things can happen this side of heaven spiritually. There's a lot of different things can happen physically, but spiritually is learning who God is. The second is learning who you are to God, like how he can use you. And I started uh, realizing that I wasn't even alone. Like God had given me a partner, my wife, like she described is there for the underdog. Like she gave me permission. She served with me, you know, instead of us having business lunches at Ciotti's, I was inviting rich people to have business lunches with me at Salvation Army instead of like, you know, like I just wanted the people that I felt had access to the message of the gospel and the physical means to help end some of the suffering that I was seeing as, because when you grow up poor and you read scripture, what do you think is highlighted to a guy like me? The 200 plus verses that talk about the poor, you know? So Jesus for me was like, man, like had I had him earlier, he would have spared me so much crap. So for me, it was just this compulsion. Like, yeah. I just couldn't do anything other than bring that message to those people. And it gets lonely, you know, because I'd watch buddies like me get saved. Um, and the pulls of the world are tough, right? So, like, you'd watch them. But, like, their family's broken. Their support system around them is broken. They don't quite fit into church yet because they want to smoke out in the parking lot. Or, you know, they just come with a lot of baggage and issues. And we just pressed on and persevered through it. And uh, Uh, you saw you not being reached, right? Like you saw. No, it wasn't even just me, man, at this time. Like my dad's the homeless guy under the bridge in our hometown. Like my dad, my dad, uh, my dad was literally that guy that everybody drives past panhandling or is picking through their trash and stuff, you know? And it's like, I know my dad, I know, I know who he is. And, uh, once you know who God is, you know, God sees people that way. So, so anyways, um, uh, we just said this side of heaven, like there's, there's, there's nothing that brings us more joy than seeing, Uh, Christ in those places and it costs you a lot but uh, I had to look at even the job that I had and been like man like do I want to lead the poor to Christ who doesn't promise them anything while I'm rolling up into their neighborhood in a Mercedes or a lamp like because the, the the trajectory God had me on was was a path of money. Like we were making mm-hmm. really good money, yeah. really good finances and stuff like that. So um, I even watched the, the message that I would bring into these places get muddled. You know, like all of a sudden kids were coming to Jesus and coming to church and all that type of stuff. And I don't know if it was maybe because, you know, they, they were following uh, the crumbs that might come along with it. So anyways, uh you fast forward our life and in serving the poor of our neighborhood just opened up different doors. And I found Sammy and I found ourselves in the, uh, the back of backstage of life fest or was it life fest mm-hmm. uh, by my. An outdoor Bob. Christian music yeah, festival. Outdoor yeah. Christian music festival. And Bob Lenz said, Hey man, yeah. why don't you speak for compassion international? You know, compassion international led me to international work in well and like one part you skip let me just 
fill it in really quick because I'm good at quick details, uh, is we went from, you know, this place that we were serving, we served for several, several years and then chose to have Joe leave the business world and take over running this youth center uh, as the executive sure. director. Yeah. So when we served there for several years and then in the process of that uh, is how we ended up in ministry and then now connected with this like Christian music festival yeah. and this guy, Bob, who introduced Sa- us. To Sammy, connection. what about Sammy? What about you for a second? Because that's not, it wasn't your upbringing, right? Like you, mm-hmm. you said, I didn't, I didn't come from, you know, material possessional poverty. I didn't, that wasn't me. Was that a hard transition to see your husband say like, this is, I don't feel right anywhere other than this. Was it a weird transition for you to, to make that your focus was a weird transition at all for you of like, okay, I'm, I guess I'm going to go work in the inner cities. I'm going to go work in the lower income housing. I'm going to go work wherever. It seems like for Joe is just a natural, I'm seeing mm-hmm. me, I'm seeing me yeah. and my whole life and my family not being reached by the church. What yeah. you? Like what, what was that like for you? You know, I do feel like it was just a pretty natural thing for me. I mean, I, I mean, I feel kind of weird being like, I'm full of compassion, but like that is, you know, like it is just kind of my guts. Like I, I have like a deep compassion for people, especially people that are hurting. And so I think for me, you know, my, my hurting growing up did not come from lack of resource. You know, my parents weren't wealthy. Like my dad was, my dad's retired Navy. We lived in a trailer, you know, but it wasn't like I ever wanted for anything. It wasn't like I was ever, you know, like severely neglected or abused or anything like that. Um, But I did have my own, um, you know, things in my own, uh, the own areas of my life where I really could have compassion for people because of how I was treated for, uh, certain choices that I made through my teenage years. And I, I did have like a, a real, um, empty, like broken heart for many years. And so I think for me, you know, anybody that's going through something where they have an empty or broken heart, like I'm going to feel for you because I know what that feels like. And so, you know, for me, the minute we started serving, I like at this youth center, I, I just was really I don't know. Like it just, it just felt right for me. Like, I think I, you know, I didn't, I'm not the type of girl, like, I don't know if you're a little girls play, uh, you know, like they're going to be a mom, like they play with dolls and oh, like yeah, yeah, yeah. all that stuff. I wasn't that yeah. kid. Yeah. Uh, I was more like, I liked making things and creative and, and I didn't necessarily think like, Oh, like somebody, I want to have eight kids and two son-in-laws. It wasn't like something on my radar screen. Right. Like I just have a life dream to be a stay at home mom. Yeah. But I also, was naturally at the same time, like a caretaker, um, because of my life, you know, my, I grew up, my mom was very sickly. And so I had a lot of responsibilities that were caretaking responsibilities, Mm. like cooking and cleaning Mm. and, you know, checking on my brother who was having a hard time and whatever. And so I think for me, it was like a natural kind of like, Oh, I can take care of these people. And, you know, at the same time that that's all going on, I am becoming a mom and very quickly becoming a mom of a lot of kids. And so, you know, I don't feel like it it all felt um, anything other than just like God being so clear, like that we're absolutely in our sweet spot. And I mean, we within a few months of Joe and I getting together, we were already serving at that youth center and we were there in some form or another for like nine years, um, whether it was just serving or, you know, him, him being, yeah, on the board or him being, um, on staff there. So, yeah, I don't know. I think it just really felt 
seamless for me. I uh, do genuinely just love people. Like I'm highly relational, um, maybe not as extroverted as I was before we lived in Haiti. That kind of like messes with you a little bit, but sure. um, yeah, I think it just seemed pretty seamless for me. So you just, you just mentioned Haiti. Um, yes. So <laughs> we get there uh, finally, right? Right. No. Yeah. So, you know, you, you are in the business world and you're um, just serving mm-hmm. uh, amongst the poor in your community. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you're a part of the youth center for years, right? And mm-hmm. I know ministry is also a part of what you're doing. You get mm-hmm. connected with combat compassion international mm-hmm. and you're doing international now stuff. The Like you just said, Joe, like now international work has just opened up to you. Um, where does Haiti enter into your story and how did it just, how did it hook you? I know from hearing yeah. little bits and pieces that that country just hooked you. Yeah. What did that look like? You want me to share that part to make it snappy? Well, let me, let me, I, 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 would, <laughs> I can make this snappier. Accident. So probably accidentally it, on purpose. I think it's going to be on my tombstone. I don't know anybody else that says it. So I believe it, it's my own. I don't know. Maybe not, but, <laughs> but I described, so you have to remember, I was called by God to follow him. That's if I was to say uh, what Sammy and I's life has looked like, obviously we could fill in a lot of the details, but it really has just been following him, right? Like, Every single moment I even try, I have to stop and say, okay, God, I don't want to get ahead of you, you know, you, you leader or nothing at all. So accidentally on purpose, right? So ex- I am an experiential learner and experiences, you know, change trajectory for me. So here now we're experiencing international uh, uh, poverty, physical poverty and stuff like that. And a big turn of events happening. We find ourselves in Haiti. Something happens in Haiti that connects with my soul as a person that grew up feeling less than set apart and all those things prevented me from being able to be whole. uh, Haiti, it's just everywhere, right? Like you just have to get to know the history, you have to get to know the people. And to be honest with you, the more you do, the more it makes you understand how physically uh, they're just pushed out, but coming into a country like that with all of the scripture that I knew at the time, because this is 2010, I'd been walking with the Lord for a long time, experienced God in so many different situations. And the icing on the cake to your question is God gave me a wife that was a caretaker. She was a great caretaker for me. And one of the greatest ways she cared for me in the ministry that God called us both into was saying, as long as we have each other, I'm not worried about the house or the car or what things that we were chasing at when God asked us to leave it all, right? Because we sold everything we've owned twice to pursue these crazy things that God was calling us into. And for Haiti, what ended up happening I'm was, not doing it again. What happened? That <laughs> was it, last time. Uh, not going to do that. What happened, Please with, don't make what happened with Haiti <laughs> is I got a schooling that I longed for in my spirit that I just wasn't finding in the States. And that was this physical poverty can be your greatest blessing. And what I mean by that is I first showed up in Haiti to do, like I just really thought like that's why God was sending me. And this role reversal of, all of a sudden realizing that I didn't have to, to, and this is to the spiritual people I'm meeting in Haiti, you know, the Christian men that I'm meeting in Haiti, 
like, I'm like, I don't have anything to offer these guys. Like I just want to sit at their feet and learn. So I started learning, like I could give out of the abundance of what I have, right. Coming from America, a pastor from America, I've got resources and, you know, different ways of structuring things and accountability, all these different things I have to offer them that, that help further the gospel and help them take care of their widows and orphans. And what they have for me is this spiritual hunger that I didn't even know was lacking. And what I mean by that spiritual hunger is here I'm looking at people that I can associate with, right? I have great compassion for these people because I experienced in part in America what it's like to be forgotten about, left behind, unseen, unheard. You know, it's a place where I'm reading Proverbs on the streets. I would pick up these little things and it would say, no one hears the cries of the poor. No one hears the sound of a wooden bell. And this is resonating with me. And I'm like, that's that's what it's like. You don't get it. And then watching these guys have joy and peace and patience and self-control and all these fruits of the spirit things that I feel like are, are, are lacking in part in my life. So what Haiti became for me, and I've never really shared this with a ton of people was this weird connection of saying what it is that my American congregation, what my American brothers and sisters need most is exposure to these things to give them a landing field for so much scripture that we just cruise right over. Right. So as a pastor and somebody that's spending 40, 50 hours in, in scripture, trying to find messages for people, because so many of the messages that God has for me are coming out of my experiences. I just felt like I had an audience that was like right over their heads. So it's like, I wanted to introduce as many people to the poor as I could to understand me but for some reason that didn't work well in America because it wasn't a bizarre enough experience to make them look for God. So I would take rich people. When I say rich people, I just mean better than average people from my churches into the ghettos of America. They would look for physical things to fix the problems. Sure. When I would take people to Haiti, they would experience something that went beyond their ability. They're like, I can't write a check for this. I can't fit. This is every uh, single person started. Yeah, every yeah. single person's this. Sure. And we would start leading these trips that made them see beyond that. Say, God, why did you bring me here? And how can I do that? And it somehow would meld this beautiful, like what we call mission of mutual exchange, where Haitians or poor people have something to offer. Because when you become that physically poor, you feel like you have nothing to offer the world. Like you don't have anything to give. You're only a receiver. And what I learned is these people had riches beyond riches to give. They just were, they weren't, they weren't necessarily in a physical form. So yeah, I mean, Haiti became this place to help me even understand how to serve better here in the States. Like never did I feel like God's call and mission for me was to, uh, fix, make everything right in Haiti, but to show them that they're seen and that they're loved, which is what I always wanted from God. And then to help their voice kind of be spread. And so anyways, it just sounds like you're saying like you found, you went from this idea of being, um, experiencing an American level of material poverty and wanting to be seen, wanting to be, you know, heard, wanting to be known, wanting to be, uh, stand out for something. Uh, and so the answer is you had said, I got to make money. If I want, I got to make money. I got to get the things that I feel like I'm missing 
full circle almost years later, you find yourself in your heart, in your spirit, being hooked and just gripped by one of, if not the poorest nations in the world and realizing in their poverty, you are actually seeing life and humanity and spirit and joy and beauty. And riches. Like, mm-hmm. And they didn't have any of the things that you even tried to get or have an opportunity yeah. to get those things. Yes. It's just like full circle. Oh my gosh. Like I can relate in the sense of compassion to not feeling seen or heard or known. And yet you're teaching me that there right. is still beauty yeah. and, and beauty each, and life and, and each spirit. Person, like, right. And each person being naive to the fact that's the beauty of it because it's not like my brothers and sisters in Haiti are trying to teach me proud. Like they're not proud. They need me as much as I need them, which like completes the circle, which is like I said, what I was trying to do even on the state side, but I'd have a disconnect because the people from the church and the people from the ghetto, the one thing they did have in common was they thought money fixed problems. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I don't think you're, you're saying, I don't yeah. think you're saying anyone wants to be materially poor. Yeah, no. It's not right. like, oh, that yes, awesome. That's the direction I want to go in. It's more yeah. like you're only seeing a certain level. You're seeing the surface level of the things, and you're not mm-hmm. realizing that life and beauty and spirit is in them, even though they might be the they're without in the yeah, in the physical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, they're they're still hoping. You know, for, yeah. to feed their kids, send them to school, you know, nice shoes, whatever, all that type of stuff. It's just they've gotten so far past that as a need to feel fulfilled. Yeah. Like they've, mm. they've found fulfillment in Christ in a way that I didn't even know I was fully fulfilled until 2010 because I was a part of everyone else that still went to the throne of God uh, like a child does to, you know, asking for stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, and it wasn't until then that I realized, okay, instead of asking for stuff, which my God is good. To, my father's good to give me the, the stuff matters. So that's when I started saying like, I'm, I'm not jealous for somebody's Yeezys. I'm jealous for Guy's, uh self-control. I'm, I'm jealous. He is for, our friend. In Haiti. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm jealous of this Haitian's hospitality. Like yeah. they, they take, they, you really wanted Yeezys, babe? They're no, I don't, I, oh. I don't want to I'm just saying like, <laughs> I'm just, sneakers. I'm just saying, I wouldn't, apart from that experience, I wouldn't have known it and even growing because what happened also in the flesh in the real life was right. As a child, I was trying to fulfill uh, that sense of uh, that void in me. And I was trying to fill it through things because that was what I was bought into. Well, I can remember working all summer long for those Reebok pumps that I had to walk home from school one day in the rain. And now, now they, now they're, they're horrible. And not only are they horrible, they represent all this hard work and, and a deeper sense. Well, the same thing happened when Sam, when I brought Sammy a land cruiser and I pull up at a stoplight, it was just weeks before, months before. This is before ministry. I was celebrating, I was celebrating (laughs) the fact that I bought my wife this amazing car. Yeah, sure. And and then a Mercedes is pulled up next to me and I'm coveting that. And I, you know, so you become, you realize that, that, so anyways, let me, let me ask you guys two last questions uh, yes. before we close this thing off. Um, what is your hope now with what you're doing in upstream? And if anyone's listening to this, like what is your hope in what you do in Haiti? What is your hope in what you're doing uh, with your work right now amongst, I know you also have some connections in Africa, right? Like you, mm-hmm. you've had connections elsewhere in the, in the world of primarily Haiti. What is your, What's your hope? Like, what is it that you feel like that 
that this spirit is is pulling you to do amongst the poor and and if and if anyone's listening to this like what how can they hear more about you or what or what you're doing who's gonna answer that me (laughs) snappy snappy (laughs) snappy give it to the snappy one you know i think i think that for me that my hope is that i will just continue to endure and and give them a voice right Mm -hmm. because uh in full transparency it's not easy uh and really like especially the last couple years and the last year has been really challenging really difficult for us for our organization uh for the people that we serve and everything's kind of been flipped upside down in the world um and that's impacted us in in some pretty significant ways and uh you know there are times that you sorry i have you know recovering from covid so i keep coughing i'm sure sure um you know there's times there's times when uh when you do want to just give up you know Mm. like man like how do you just keep going but so yeah so I'd say for me like my greatest hope is that I would that I would just endure and that I would just continue that that we would continue to be a voice because uh they don't have the option to give up and walk away right the kids that we serve the people that we serve um there, there is no option for them. They have to endure. And so uh, I think I think my greatest hope for our ministry in light of that, just being endurers and 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 you know staying on course is that um, that the voice that we give them would would just impact for for generations to come. Um, I mean, I I'm a bit of a dreamer, and and so there's definitely things where I'm like, well, gosh, I mean, what I'd really like to see happen is, sure. you know, kids in the slum that we serve never going hungry. Like that'd be the main thing, yeah. you know. But I would say that you know, for us, just being faithful, that we would uh, keep being faithful to what God's given us, that we wouldn't try to take on more than He's asked us to. Um, in many ways, we've kind of slimmed down and refocused and said, like, okay, like this is what we're doing. But you know. This week, we got uh, some pictures and videos sent to us um, because of COVID and traveling and different things are going on. It's made it so that travel is um, pretty limited. Like Joe's able to travel. Um, Our team won't let me come right now because of some safety issues. Um, And so it's that adds another layer of complexity. And so we're getting photos rather than being the ones there um, taking them. And we've always been really careful as an organization to not um, exploit, to not, um, you know, show people a line of people suffering and us giving to them. Like we were, I feel like we try to be really careful, but we got some pictures this week uh, and a video of this young girl um, in our like pre pre-K class, uh, who came to school crying and it was because she was hungry. She hadn't eaten. And, um, it's like, I don't know how that always hits me fresh because we've been doing this for 10 years now. We know that our kids are only eating at school sometimes, but there's just certain times where it just hits you afresh and you are reminded of like why you're doing what you're doing. Mm. Uh, and so like in the tangible, like, uh, measurable, what I, what we want to do is feed these kids, yeah. uh, give them an education, uh, have them have access to medical care. So that we don't have kids that are literally dying because of something that my kids wouldn't die from. Mm-hmm. Um, that is like the main goal and all of that wrapped in wanting them to know Jesus, right? Because no, um, education, no food, no, none, none of the things that we can give them in the physical world, um, matter at the end of it all. Right. Like, yes. Do you, do you want to alleviate their suffering? 
Of course, of course you do. Uh, but at the same time, like what we want most for them is for them to know God, to know that they're seen, to know that they're loved, to know that they were worthy of him dying for them and for us to spend our lives on behalf of them. And so, I mean, for us, like we're, we're always looking for people to help carry this burden and this torch with us because it's a heavy one. It's a heavy burden. Um, but I guess I didn't make it that snappy. Did I? <laughs> people can find you. People can keep up with what you're doing. Uh, you have a website, correct? Yeah, of course. Upstreamint.org or just Upstream International. We do compete with a large uh, oil rigging company. Yeah, an oil there. company sure. called Upstream. But if okay. you <laughs> okay. attach anything to it, you can usually pull it up. And just to social add the same. Uh, social media, yeah. Instagram. Everything. I want people to be able to All find it. you. Upstream, oh, yeah. Facebook, at Upstream International. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah Joe, you're going to say? I was just saying, you know, for us personally, Sammy nailed it absolutely 100% on the head. You know, when God calls you to something, not quitting is how you win. It's going to be hard. You know, God, Jesus himself led his disciples into storms. You know, it's in those storms that you remember who's in your boat and like the lessons that God gives you along the way to, to persevere. Um, you know, when I started tearing up and talking about how hard this is, uh, I, I struggle with abandonment issues, you know, so when you look for the church to be the replacement of family, sometimes it can feel like you're abandoned in these situations. Sure. You know, there's so much that pulls at our heart for interest, right? Like, you know, there'd be it just, we all Whatever have, we all have flashing. our things, mm-hmm. right? And that's, that's not, you know, that it's, it's kind of one of those forgive them father for they know not what they do parts for us personally, like Sammy said, uh, we, we have the opportunity and the privilege of being their voice. And I want to know that we are working on their behalf to make sure that they're seen that they're heard because my, the romantic part of Christianity that keeps me in love is that we have a God in heaven that hears our prayers and he immediately goes to work on our behalf to answer those prayers. And for me, it's never been Jesus Christ himself descending the heavens to be the provider of those prayers. It's been through his body. It's been people bringing diapers to my house or to, you know, $50 showing up when I didn't expect it. And that becomes our daily job with upstream is we are hearing the prayers of our people. We are engaging in the prayers of our people. And then we're sharing that out in an audience in hopes that people respond and, you know, we are schools, you know, they're Christian schools. So these kids are being poured into, I mean, their prayer sessions, the gospel message they're getting is huge at the end of the day though. uh, You know, food and the necessity. When you ask that question, I think about the beginning of school every year, we're letting the 200 students into our school that are just overjoyed and behind them is a hundred thousand kids that just want a seat at the table and 25 bucks a month, uh, for whatever reason, sometimes can feel like a lot of money. But that $25 a month, literally, it, it, it goes beyond changing a life. It, it, it gives hope to the parents. It gives hope to a community because the more of these kids that get educated and come to know the Lord, the more they serve the community. And uh, it's just, like I said, it's an honor and a privilege, but it gets it can get really lonely at times. Yeah. And uh and people can become partners with your students and kids in, in, in Haiti and Citadel Soleil through your website or through contacting you. Yep, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, just go to the website. It's pretty easy. Or contact us either way. We are for the technical, you know, for the people that matter. We're a designated give, 
designating giving platform, which simply just means as long as you put in an instruction where you want sure. that money to go, that sure. is where it goes. And uh, it's not for our salaries or our cars or anything like that. Joe, this is the last thing. Um, I want you to take a minute and just speak to if someone is still listening to this, someone's yeah. still on. Um, <laughs> Four hours later, you, you win a medal. Um, no, but, um, you know, and they, maybe they resonate with the idea of, um, I'm real close to just being done. You know, like I haven't been seen. I haven't been heard. I haven't mm-hmm. been known. Um, what do you say to them? You know? Oh, jeepers. Yeah. Um, I know the answer for me personally. Um, we can we can be brought to places, you know, sometimes by our own hands, sometimes by the influence of the world. Sometimes, you know, we were joking earlier, you know, 42 years old and you're looking at that there's 40 more years left. For some people, that's exciting. For some people, that's really, really depressing. Hmm. Because all they've experienced from this life is hardship, right? Like I'm a fully saved man that fully embraces all that comes with salvation. Yet we see suffering every single day, like to deep, deep depths. And uh, it can bring you to a place where you're crying out to God and saying, God, like, do you see me? Do you know me? And in that moment, all you can do is just ask yourself, am I I breathing? I know that sounds ridiculous, but with our very breath, gives evidence to hope. Because as long as we are alive, God has uh, amazing abilities to show himself strong on our behalf, to show himself a conqueror in the areas that we've been uh, let down or, or lost or fa- like all the things that got you to that point. Like there is truly a God in heaven that is super, super excited uh, about not just giving you all the answers to your questions, but allowing you to continue to take breaths to, to see him in, in a different way. You know, um, <laughs> exiting this world, you know, I, I had a father that, uh, that chose to do that, you know, in 2010, he, he decided that it was just hard enough. And um, I'll never know um, what's going on there in that moment or, or, or after. But I think of all the things that he did also miss out on and is continuing to miss out on. And God's going to take us when it's time and when it's ready. And until that point, he, he just isn't done with you. So honestly, goodness, I, I ask for all the time is, 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 uh, you know, just more of you, God, like I just mm. more of you, more of understanding, um, because this man uh, physically in his flesh, yeah, it doesn't have much to offer. But, you know, in Christ, m- my weakness uh, gives evidence to his strength. So for me, when it feels like nothing else is out there and you can think about the fact that you actually have a breath in your lungs, that breath sometimes is is all that you have to offer up to. You know, mm. so. Keep I, 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 I've said to God, Hey, give me a sliver of hope. And him say, you're breathing, right? Yeah. So that's hope enough. If you trust and believe in God, uh, the one true God in the way that he describes himself in scripture, that breath is mm-hmm. evidence that he's not done with you yet. And that his plans uh, to prosper you and not harm you are there. And what it is that you've asked for all along, what the purpose mm-hmm. is may not be revealed to you yet. Like, 
my purpose, Joe Rogelski's purpose, may not actually be revealed to me until I'm old, right? Abraham had promises that took hundreds of years to fulfill. Noah had promises that took 160 plus yeah. years to fulfill. Yeah. I don't know what all that time in between looked like, but uh, had they took it short, uh, they wouldn't have experienced it. They wouldn't have been written amongst the heroes keep of the faith. So keep breathing, keep breathing. Keep keep breathing. breathing. And then all the other parts, right? Find yeah. help. Yeah. When you're at that place, one thing that you've proven to yourself is you're lacking some tools. There are some tools that are missing. Yeah. Your I describe it as your broken brain is trying to fix your broken brain. No matter how smart, no matter how intelligent you are, you're trying to, you're trying to figure it out and you've spun yourself to a place where you're not going to find the solution. You gotta, you gotta buck up and go ask for some help or go take a trip somewhere and get some resources. Uh, and, and it's, it's all going to be around God. It's just, even though you may know it, right. I was yeah, yeah. pastor preacher thought I thought I knew it all. And I still have gotten to places yeah. like that. So anyways, well, yeah. And people can always reach out to us. Like for sure. My heart is, you know, in that whole question of like, what would you tell someone is like, for sure, what Joe said, you have breath, you have hope, um, is reach out. Like we, we're not, we're not created to do this alone. And I think that there's many times that people, especially in the church, you feel alone and you feel like maybe you can't tell everybody the full picture. Right. And so I'm somebody, Hey, if you're a lady and you're ever in that space, reach out to me. I will gladly listen. I'm a vault after uh, years of ministry. I can, there's things like, I just, I won't tell anybody your junk. Um, yeah. Reach out to me anytime. Joe and Sammy, thank you for being my friends. Oh, we thank love you, you for John. doing what you do. Thank you for inspiring me because you truly do. And uh, I hope anyone who is listening to this is inspired by your guys' story as well. And so thank you. And thank you everyone for tuning in uh, to this episode of the John Reiner podcast. See you guys.